0: All right, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter twenty-five if you're not there already. It starts on page nineteen, if you have one of our uh, welcome table Bibles. Genesis chapter twenty-five. This this chapter is the official transition from Abraham to Isaac. So we've been focused on Abraham uh, from since Genesis twelve. Now we're moving on to Isaac, but Isaac himself plays this more uh, a more of a transitional role in the storyline. So. Most of the stories in Genesis that, that involve Isaac focus on him or refer to him either as Abraham's son or as, as Jacob's father, okay? And, uh, and we're going to see that reflected here in, in chapter 25. Next week, we will get a little bit of, of focus on Isaac, but we're going to see this transition from really from Abraham to Jacob through Isaac. Remember, God promised Abraham, your offspring will be traced through Isaac, right? And so we're going to see that this morning. And, uh, but as we move from, from one generation to the next in this, in this storyline, and remember I say storyline because we're reading through a narrative, but this is history. This really happened, and we need to remember that and keep this in mind. This isn't just a fun Sunday school story. This is the reality of what God has done to bring us to Jesus Christ uh, and to reveal himself through, through Christ. And, and, and this is the case, right? As we move from one generation to... To the next in this storyline, we are going to see today how God uh, is and His faithful love reaches not just from Abraham to Jacob, but to a thousand generations, including our own. And so I want to ask the Lord for, for His Spirit's help, in, uh, in, uh, and then we'll dig in. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that as followers of Christ, you've sealed us with your Spirit, the Spirit. Uh, who counsels us, and who leads us into all truth. So this morning, as we look at the, the truth of your word, we pray that you would correct us, rebuke us, equip us, train us, comfort us, give us exactly what we need according to your truth, by your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you call it when you get something that you don't deserve? In our culture we would call it injustice, okay? Think about it. If a person is sentenced to death for a crime that he didn't commit while a murderer goes free, they both get what they don't deserve, right? It's injustice. But what do we call it when we see people getting what they don't deserve in Scripture? We call it grace. We call it grace. Why? Because grace is unmerited favor from God to us. Grace, we can think of it this way, grace is is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see the difference between injustice and grace. And here's our thought, okay? This is what we want to kind of anchor everything to. God doesn't extend his grace to reward sin. He does it to redeem sinners. God doesn't extend his grace to reward sin. That would be injustice, He extends His grace to redeem sinners. Let's dig in. Verse one of Genesis twenty-five. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan, that guy right there. This is a bad passage to read on uh, the time change. Jachin fathered Sheba and Dadan. Dadan's sons were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. And Midian's sons were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abedah, and Eldah. And all these were sons of Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. And while he was still alive, he sent them eastward, away from his son Isaac, to the land of the east. Now, These verses are establishing the fact that Father Abraham had many sons, right? Many sons had... You're welcome for getting that in your head. He had more sons than just just Isaac and Ishmael. Back in Genesis 17, God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations. And it's clear from these verses that God kept that promise. Now, it's also clear that both God and Abraham have another promise in view here. Abraham was blessed with many offspring, but there was only one offspring who would receive the promised blessings of the covenant, and it was time then for, for Abraham and for the Lord himself to separate this promised son from the rest of them. And that happened in two ways in verses 5 and 6. First, verse 5 tells us that Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac, and verse 6 tells us that he gave gifts to his other sons. But notice that the author doesn't call them Abraham's sons here, even though that's what they are. He calls them the sons of Abraham's concubines. What's a concubine? It's a wife who had a lower status in this case than than Sarah did as Abraham's, as the matriarch. The the author is making a a distinction between Isaac as the chosen son of the covenant and, and the rest of Abraham's offspring. Those sons received gifts, because Abraham loved them just as he loved Ishmael and and had a hard time sending him away uh, a couple chapters ago, But, but they did not receive the inheritance. They didn't receive the inheritance from Abraham. That went to Isaac alone. Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac, is what it says. And because Isaac was the promised son of the covenant, only he could remain then in the promised land. So after Abraham gave them gifts, he sent the other sons away from the land of Canaan. And if you remember back in chapter 21, Abraham also sent Hagar and Ishmael away because God had promised him that his covenant offspring would be traced, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And so by sending everyone else away, Abraham was ending any claim that they had on an inheritance, which now included a piece of the promised land. Remember that Abraham owns a, a field with a cave in it in the land of Canaan, right? So when I when Abraham uh, sent Ishmael away, that's how Ishmael lost his firstborn status as, as the firstborn son. And now all these other sons have lost their own claim to any sort of inheritance as well. Verse 6 also says that Abraham sent them eastward to the land of the east. It's repetitive, redundant. The, the notion of moving eastward in Uh, is a recurring theme in Genesis that consistently points to a deviation from God's good design and plan. Adam and Eve were were banished eastward from the Garden of Eden after they sinned. Cain went out from the Lord's presence after he killed Abel, and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Sinful humanity traveled eastward to build the Tower of Babel in in rebellion against God. Lot and Abraham, when they split, which way did Lot go? To the east. And here Abraham sent the other sons eastward away from the promised sun and the promised land. Back in chapter 22, God had promised to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? But also as the sand on the seashore. What's happening right here and what we're reading is is like taking all of that sand and just sifting it through a screen until you have a seashell left, and that seashell is Isaac. Okay? He's the promised son. Not only did Isaac receive Abraham's inheritance, but he also received God's blessing. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hethite. This was a field that Abraham bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahairo'i. Chapter 12 tells us that Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran to follow God's leading. 75 years old. Here we see he died when he was 175. That means that he lived by faith in God for a hundred years. A hundred years. Now, we have seen in, in all of these chapters from chapter 12 on to now, Abraham had several ups and downs in those hundred years. We, haven't, we didn't even see all of them, right? Scripture's selective about what it shows us because it's showing us those things for a purpose. But as Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the midst of all his ups and downs, he was still counted righteous. Why? Because he believed God's promise. And God is faithful to keep his promise. A few, chapter, or a few verses later in chapter 15, God told Abraham, you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. At a good old age. Here in verse 8, we're reminded once again that God does what he says. Abraham took his last breath and he died, what? At a good old age. Old and contented. And he was gathered to his people. I love how it says that Abraham was content when he died. It wasn't just a good old age. He was content when he died. He would waited 25 years for God to give him the promised son. And by the time Isaac was born, Abraham was already an old man and getting along in years, right? He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. Chapter 18 specifically mentions that Sarah bore him a son in his old age. The guy's old, Abraham was 137 years old when Sarah died. After 62 years of waiting on God to give him the promised land, Abraham got one piece. He got a field with a cave in it so he could bury his wife. 25 years waiting on the promised son, 62 years waiting on the promised land. Abraham spent 100 years walking with the Lord in faith. And most of that was waiting on these promises that he never got to see completely fulfilled in his lifetime. But he could die a contented man. Why? Because he had experienced God's grace. He'd experienced God's grace. In those hundred years, Abraham did plenty of things to disqualify himself from God's covenant promises, right? Chapter 16 Sarah's like, hey, I'm barren, here's my slave. Here comes Ishmael, right? He did several things. He did plenty of things to disqualify himself from God's covenant promises, but God himself remained faithful, and Abraham got what he did not deserve. He experienced God's grace. Last week at the beginning of chapter 24, we read, now Abraham was old, there it is again, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Even though Abraham didn't live to see his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, he did get a foretaste of what was to come through his son Isaac and through his grandson Jacob. And even though he didn't live to see his descendants inhabiting all of the promised land, Abraham himself got a taste of that he, when he buried his own wife in it. And now he himself is buried next to her in the cave that he owned, in the field that he owned in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Even though he didn't see all of God's promises completely fulfilled in his lifetime, Abraham himself died as a fulfilled man who experienced the blessings and the grace of God for a hundred years. If you were to die today, could it be said of you that you were content when you took your last breath? Those areas in which we are discontent often reveal themselves to be areas where we fail and have failed to recognize the grace of God in our lives. I was convicted of my own discontentment in some areas this past week. That conviction itself is a gift of grace, is it not? That God would prick our hearts and, and enable us to see, oh man, I'm, I'm looking at something else. I'm looking for something else rather than Him. that's the beautiful thing about grace. He'll give you and me all the grace that we need, not only to recognize our need, but then to satisfy our need in Him and to find contentment in Him. After Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac just as He promised to do. Abraham could, could pass on the inheritance to Isaac, but only God could pass on the covenant and the promises that came along with it, and the blessing that came along with it. And just as the blessing shifted from Abraham to Isaac, so now the story shifts from Abraham to Isaac as Ishmael fades out of the picture. Look at verse 12. These are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaeth, Ishmael's firstborn, then Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are Ishmael's sons, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments, 12 leaders of their clans. This is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died, and he was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt as you go towards Asher. He stayed near all his relatives. Now apart from a couple later references to his descendants, this is the last that we will hear of Ishmael in the book of Genesis. This summary of Ishmael's life in verse 17 is almost a word-for-word description of the summary of Abraham's life back in verse 7. But notice what's not the same here. The, the, what words are, are missing from Ishmael's life summary that are included in Abraham's. It doesn't say that Ishmael died at a good old age. It doesn't say he was content either. This contrast between him and Abraham is intentional. When, when, the, when, when the author uh, repeats phrases word for word and leaves things out, those are the things we want to pay attention to. It's another way of showing that Ishmael was not the son of who would benefit from God's covenant promises to Abraham? Notice in verse 12 how Ishmael is referred to as Abraham's son, but the emphasis is on the fact that he is the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, the slave of Sarah. Like it just piles it on, right? Yes, he's he's Abraham's son, but this is why. He's not the promised son. And notice where Ishmael was not buried. He wasn't buried in the cave with with Abraham and Sarah in the promised land it's clear that he was not the son who would receive the covenant promises but because he was Abraham's son he would still be blessed right And his family records show that once again, God was faithful to keep all his promises. Back in chapter 17, after God told Abraham that Sarah would be the one to give birth to Isaac and that Isaac would be the one through whom God would confirm his covenant, Abraham pleaded with God and he said, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you, right? And even though God had already made it clear that Isaac was the chosen one, he also promised to bless Ishmael and to make him fruitful and to multiply him greatly. God said that Ishmael would father 12 tribal leaders and God would make him into a great nation. And here in verses 13 through 16, we get the names of these 12 tribal leaders. God does what he says. He's faithful to keep his promises. Ishmael's story ends in verse 18 with the words, he stayed near his relatives. Now, that phrase Harkens us back to God's foreshadowing words to Hagar in Genesis 16. He says, this man will be a wild donkey, talking about Ishmael. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Same phrases. They're tying these things together. And with that picture of hostility and strife fresh in our minds, our focus is now directed to a new generation. Isaac's two sons. Look at verse 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramian from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramian. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to, re- to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. One of the first major things that we're told here is that Abraham fathered Isaac. Well, yeah, right? We know this already. But if you look at it in the context of what's already been said, the author wants to remind us this is the promised son, this is the son that's attached to Abraham in, in, in blessing, in covenant, in, in, yes, all the others in genealogy, but I just want you to make sure, I want to make sure that you know Isaac is Abraham's son. But then we're immediately given another important piece of information. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was childless. She was barren, just like Sarah had been until she had Isaac. Now, this barrenness poses a problem for Rebekah as the new matriarch and for Isaac as the new patriarch, right? Because in order for God's covenant promises to be passed through Isaac, what has to happen? He's got to have kids. He's got to have offspring, right? He's got to have sons of his own, just as Abraham did. This common theme of the matriarch's barrenness in Genesis is no coincidence. The women through whom the covenant blessings are passed on to the next generation are unable to produce the next generation naturally. Why? So that they would rely on the Lord to do it supernaturally by opening their wombs. This serves as a consistent reminder to us that God's covenant promises cannot be gained by human effort they can only be given by God's sovereign power and what? His grace. Abraham could give Isaac the inheritance, but God had to give Isaac the blessing. The women were barren and could not continue on that blessing unless God blessed them and gave them what they needed. Isaac himself is living proof of this, so when he realized that Rebecca was unable to have children... He prayed. He prayed to the Lord who knit him together in his mother's own barren womb. And in his sovereign power and grace, God answered Isaac's prayer and opened Rebekah's womb. And when she conceived, God didn't give her just one child. He gave her twins. But her joy at being pregnant was short-lived because there was this battle that was raging inside her womb. Verse 22 says that the children inside her struggled with each other. In the Hebrew, that word for struggle gives this sense of ongoing hostility or enmity between the two offspring. It's an echo back to Genesis 3.15. Remember, that's, that's been the thread that has been woven through all of these stories. As soon as Adam and Eve fell and God cursed the serpent, he, he gave this promise. Here's what it says. I will put hostility, struggle, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, with that in mind and with what we've just read, we can see what's coming, right? One of the children in Rebekah's womb will be representative of the offspring of the serpent and the other will be representative of the offspring of Eve that carries that line through Abraham's family to the promised serpent crusher. But Rebecca didn't understand why she was literally carrying such turmoil inside her. And so she went to ask the God who had opened her womb in the first place. And God's answer revealed not only the sibling rivalry that would characterize the relationship between her two sons, but also this ongoing rivalry between two nations that would come from them. If you remember back in May of last year, we went through the book of Obadiah. Okay, It was a a prophetic book, minor prophet in the Old Testament. And it was the, the one book of prophecy that, that actually spoke directly to a foreign nation, and that nation was Edom. And it condemned Edom to judgment, and it reassured, uh, in, in, uh, by implication then, it reassured the nation of Israel that God had not forgotten the covenant that he had made with them. The nation of Edom is descended from Esau, and the nation of Israel is descended from Jacob. These are the two nations that are in Rebekah's womb. And throughout the Old Testament, these two nations have a long history of contention with one another, and that contention starts right here. Look at verse 24. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand. And so he was named Jacob, Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Uh, somewhere we read, I can't remember if it was here, or, I think it was last, last week, when we, he, uh, the servant brought Rebecca back to him and he married her. It says he was 40 years old when he married her. 20 years he prayed for God to give him the promised son, similar to his own father, praying and waiting. Like his father... Abraham, Isaac waited patiently for the Lord or on the Lord for many years. But while Abraham's waiting was depicted over several chapters, Isaac's waiting is summarized right here in this one verse. He was 60 years old when the twins were born. That's because the description of the twins' birth isn't focused on Isaac's waiting here. This account is designed to reveal the contentious relationship that God had foreshadowed in his words to Rebekah. Things happened just as God said they would. Esau came out first, right, which made him the firstborn and the older brother. His name means covered with hair, which is appropriate considering the description given to him here or given about him here. Now, the, word, the Hebrew word for red sounds like the word Edom, and the Hebrew word for hair sounds like the word seir, S-E-I-R. And we're going to see in a few chapters that these will become the names of the places where Esau and his descendants settled. So these names given to Esau are not just representative of his physical appearance, but they're also foreshadowing the nation that comes from him. Jacob came out second, a close second, Right? But that made him the younger brother, even though they were twins. Remember what God told Rebekah. He said, one of the people, or one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And this was already beginning to be fulfilled as the younger brother came out, grasping the heel of the older brother. Now, the name Jacob in, in the ancient Near East was a common name, and it was widely known to mean, may God protect. May God protect but his name also literally means, he grasps the heel, which again is appropriate considering the description of him given here. In Hebrew, this phrase, he grasps the heel, it's a figure of speech using, uh, that's used to describe someone who's a cheater and a deceiver. This is also fitting of Jacob, as we are about to see. Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. And that's why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. And then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And so Esau despised his birthright. Now, this is another one of those times where we just need to pause and, and just admit together what we just read is seriously jacked up, right? Right? This is, this is reality here. This is not candy coating. This is, not, this is why this isn't a story. This is why this is history. This is real life. And it's messy. Parents, this is why you don't pick a favorite kid. Okay? Or at least you don't say you have a favorite kid. Now, that wisdom is going to be driven home Even more so when we get to chapter 27, because we're going to see some more tension between uh, 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 Jacob and Esau again. Isaac loved Esau because Esau was an expert hunter, and Isaac liked the taste of wild game. The text doesn't tell us why Rebecca loved Jacob more. It's possible because he was a a homebody, that he was just home with her more, and so you know he spent time with that kid, and and he becomes more favorable. But regardless of the reason, it's clear that he was her favorite. Isaac loved Esau, Rebecca loved Jacob, is what it tells us. Scripture is both shockingly and refreshingly honest about the tendency that we have to align ourselves with those who serve our personal needs and wants the most. By seeing that in the people in the Bible, we are able then to see it more clearly in ourselves. And this vision, this this clarity that we're given through that is also God's grace, so that we would learn to seek after him more than anyone else. We go straight from the birth of the twins to Jacob and Esau as grown men, but we see that nothing had changed in their relationship. And here we get an example of how Jacob was still grasping, so to speak, at Esau's heel. Now, doesn't it just kind of feel like, as you read this, like like, uh, Jacob has been planning this for a while, and he's just biding his time and waiting for this, this to happen. Probably this is not the first time uh, Esau has come in exhausted from the field, right? Everything Esau did was spur of the moment. It was impulsive, but Jacob's words and actions were calculated here. They were deliberate, like he'd been ready and waiting and, and, and ready to pounce. Like he was the hunter, and Esau was the prey, right? Even though Esau was an expert hunter, he came in from the field exhausted. The Hebrew here implies he was famished, like he hadn't eaten or, or, or he had nothing to drink or to eat all day long. Now, he's an expert hunter, right? So he's probably not coming in empty-handed. He's probably coming in with whatever game that he was trying to, to, to go out and kill. But listen, who wants to take time to cook something when you come in and there's already something ready? right? Esau is famished. He's got a lot of work to do to prepare the game that he uh, killed. And, and he walks in and hears this, mm, it smells delicious, this, this soup, this stew. And Jacob just happened to be there cooking it. Esau took one look and he said, give me some of that red stuff. Give me some of that red stuff. In the Hebrew, that phrase is repeated. Give me that red stuff, that red stuff. It's meant to to, to, uh, uh, to show us the urgency, like, like everything that Esau is doing is just in a hurry here. Give me some of that red stuff. He doesn't even care what it is. It's just red. He saw it and, it and it smells and looks good. He just knew it was food and he wanted it because he was famished. Now, now it would be Jacob's turn to show his expertise. Esau was an expert at Hunting. Jacob was an expert at deception. First, sell me your birthright, Jacob said. Esau replied with more melodrama I'm so hungry. If you have a young kid, you know what that sounds like. I'm about to die, I'm starving, right? What good is my birthright to me if I'm dead? I don't care. Give me some of that red stuff. But Jacob knew that Esau was exaggerating because he just wanted to satisfy his hunger. Like, like he flippantly, again, spur of the moment, impulsive, said, I don't care about my birthright. But surely he, he, he cared about it. It's his. So, so Jacob is careful here. He doesn't just give him the stew and say, okay. He says, swear to me first. Swear to me first that I get the birthright, and then I'll give you the stew. Why did he make him swear? Because an oath is irreversible. Esau changes his mind on a whim all the time. But if you swear something back then, you can't take it back. And so Esau, Esau swore to give up his birthright. Jacob gave him the stew with some bread on the side for good measure, right? Esau had his fill. He got up and he left just like that. It's so blunt, right? His momentary impulse was satisfied and he he just moved on to the next thing without even thinking twice about what he had just given up in the long term. And because of that, the author ends the narrative not by focusing on Jacob's deception, but on Esau's disregard. It doesn't say, so Jacob deceived Esau. What does it say? So Esau despised his birthright. Why is the focus on Esau's wrongdoing and not on Jacob's? Because Esau wasn't just being careless. He was treating God's covenant promises with contempt. As the firstborn son of Isaac, Esau was first in line to receive the inheritance that was passed down to Isaac from Abraham. But Esau didn't connect the physical inheritance with the spiritual inheritance. He didn't care about it. He just wanted to eat. He didn't care about the importance of being in the covenant family. He didn't care about being the heir to the promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac. Esau couldn't care less about the future. He wanted to satisfy himself in the moment. Whatever that was that he felt like he needed then, that was the thing he was going to get. And the author makes it clear here. By despising his birthright, Esau was despising God. And the author of Hebrews agrees. In Hebrews 12, he calls Esau irreverent, or your translation might say unholy. There's no candy coating it here. Esau is against God. He sold his birthright for a single meal. That's what the the author of Hebrews says. That's an unholy and an irreverent thing to do. (coughs) Excuse me. But what do we do with Jacob then? Was it okay for him to deceive Esau and swipe his birthright? Like because the focus is on Esau here that we can just kind of give Jacob a pass. Like, good job, dude. Slipped in there. What Jacob did was just as wrong and just as sinful as what Esau did. In fact... Jacob's actions would make us think that he was the one who should have been excluded rather than Esau. In Genesis 3:15, God said that the offspring of the serpent would strike the heel of the offspring of the woman and that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. What did Jacob do to Esau when they were born? He grabbed his heel. He grabbed his heel. And what did he do to Esau when they were older? He deceived him. That sounds a lot like the serpent, doesn't it? And yet to, to generation after generation of Israelites, God is known as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and not the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Esau. What? Why? Why? When Jacob clearly didn't deserve that distinction because grace is getting what we don't deserve. Jacob was not the firstborn, and yet while he and Esau were still in the womb, God told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. And the Apostle Paul helps us understand this in Romans 9, verses 8 through 12, says, "...it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children." But the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring, the children of faith. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. That's, that's <coughs> quoting Genesis 18, 14. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand... Not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Quoting right here in Genesis 25:23, God had chosen Jacob over Esau before either one of them had been born and before either one of them had done anything good or bad. And he did that to show that when, when he chooses to bestow his blessings and his promises on someone, it's not because they've earned it by something they did. It's always a result of what God is doing. And what's he doing? He's extending his grace to those who don't deserve it for their good and for his glory. A little further down in Romans 9, it says, So then, it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. If grace is getting what we do not deserve, then mercy would be not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And they're both freely given to us by God who shows no favoritism, Jacob's deception was just as sinful as Esau's contempt for his birthright. Jacob did not have more merit in God's eyes than Esau did. They both deserved to be rejected by God because of what they had done. God didn't have a favorite. He didn't love Jacob over Esau the way, the way Rebekah loved Jacob over Esau. God gives mercy and grace, listen, because of who he is not because of who we are. Jacob was not the firstborn. Esau was, but Jacob got the birthright. Isaac was not the firstborn. Ishmael was, but Isaac got the inheritance and the blessing. In fact, a major theme in Genesis is that of the younger sibling receiving what initially belonged to the older sibling. And the point of this theme is to show that God's blessing comes to those who cannot claim any right of it to it on their own. No right to it on their own. They all got what they did not deserve. They all received God's grace. Paul captures it so well in Romans eleven six. 6. He says, now if it's by grace, then it's not by works. Why? Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. You see, if we look at Genesis 25, purely from the standpoint of what the people were doing, then we're going to be tempted to walk away from it with a sense of anger at what clearly seemed to be injustice. Because a lot of people got what they didn't deserve. And a lot of people didn't get what what we probably think they deserve. Abraham sent all his other sons away in favor of Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah each favored one of their own children over the other. Jacob deceived Esau and took something that didn't rightfully belong to him. But... If we look at Genesis 25 from the standpoint of what God was doing, what God is doing, then we'll be more likely to walk away from it with this sense of awe at what is clearly God's grace, especially when we see how what God was doing in Genesis 25 leads to what God has done for us. It's clear that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't deserve what they were given. And when we look at what Jacob was doing, it's easy to see how his name means deceiver. When we look at it from what Jacob was doing, we think of he grasps the heel. He's a cheater. He's a deceiver. But when we look at what God was doing here, then we see this greater meaning of Jacob's name come out. May God protect. What was God doing By giving these men the blessings and the promises of the covenant, God was protecting, God was preserving a family line that he had promised from Eve and brought through the line of Abraham and then will come narrow it down through the line of David and keep it continuing on and on and on until we get to who? Jesus Christ. God, in his divine and sovereign power and grace, is protecting his promise for the serpent crusher. And that promise would ultimately lead to a son who would extend God's grace to all people. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. It doesn't mean that he was the first one that was born, but rather that he holds the right, the firstborn right to all of the heavenly father's inheritance And he owns it over everything and everyone else because he is God himself and he is the one who created it all. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high in the place of the firstborn where he rightfully deserved. In our prayer time, we looked at Ephesians 1 this morning, all the spiritual blessings we've given. Ephesians 2 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature under, children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, who doesn't give us what we deserve... Because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. You are saved because God gives you what you don't deserve. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. We can't claim it. We have no right to it. And yet God gives it freely. Christ died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that he could share his inheritance with all who've been adopted as his brothers and sisters by God's grace through faith in him, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Ishmael and Esau and Sarah and Rebekah and Hagar and Keturah and everyone else, all other human beings since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. We have all lived for our own fleshly desires and deserved the wrath of God. Like Jacob, we all looked like the serpent, manipulating and deceiving and cheating to get what we want. But God is rich in mercy, and he did not give us what we deserved. Instead, because of his great love for us, he rescued us from his own righteous wrath and forgave us forever because his firstborn son willingly traded his own life for ours. And that wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. That was a calculated decision. It was deliberate. Jesus was despised and rejected by men like the birthright was despised and rejected by Esau. But God the Father accepted God the Son's sacrifice on our behalf. And by Christ's wounds, we are told, we are healed. And now he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. God is pleased to forgive anyone who trusts his son and all who trust in Christ are reconciled to God forever. Would you walk away from an offer like that? Would you despise the grace of God? As those who've received that grace, we continue to need the grace that we've been given so that we don't despise others to the point of withholding that grace from them. I love how the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. God's love does not seek out those who are intrinsically worthy of it. Indeed, no one is intrinsically worthy of God's love. That's what it means for grace to be grace. Because we've been graciously sought out by God, we ought to graciously seek out others and share with them this gospel of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. Is there anyone in your life that you're sending away from that grace? Do you play favorites with the people that God has graciously placed around you? Do you deceive or manipulate others and make them work for something that you yourself did not earn? Are you trading God's grace for temporary satisfaction? If you're able to honestly answer yes to any of those questions, I hope you see that that confession itself is a gift of God's grace. There's more grace where that came from Grace, grace for repentance, grace for forgiveness, grace to walk in obedience once again. I've heard grace explained another way, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus was sentenced to death for sin that he didn't commit so that we would go free. He endured justice so that we could receive grace. Because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, we get what we don't deserve, redemption and reconciliation to the one who has every right to condemn us. And not only that, but we also get to share in the inheritance of his firstborn son. God doesn't extend grace to reward sin. He does it to redeem sinners. What Abraham and Isaac and Jacob received is what you and I have received. We all need it, but none of us can claim any right to it on our own. Instead, God grants it freely to us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And he alone gets the glory. Why? Because we get what we don't deserve. Amen? Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your grace we would grow more and more dependent upon him and confident in him as we seek to obey you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name, amen.